where we see the power of Jesus changing people's lives quite frequently, even politicians like Andrew Powell. It's great to be here with you. Mary and I have been looking forward to visiting KSBC again. I have great memories of my time here before moving to Queensland in 2016. Of course, we went through COVID between then and now when we couldn't really easily travel down here. So we are very happy to be able to be here to, with you today. Earlier this year, there was a gathering of local churches um, right here in Melbourne. There was about 100 people attending this meeting over at Crossway Baptist. At the assembly, the question was asked, how would they rate the effectiveness of the church in evangelism? And they were broken up into groups of two or three, and some senior leaders there said maybe one out of ten. Another said maybe four out of ten. When the groups came back together, the consensus was somewhere around three out of ten. I don't know if that surprises you or not, but they did say that there were pockets of ministry where evangelism was very effective. Is God work in Melbourne? Does the church actually know what it's doing? How can we be effective in mission here in Melbourne? If you're in one location and you're not seeing God at work, it's very easy to extrapolate that across the whole city and say, that's what it must be like everywhere. Is God still at work anywhere? Again, earlier this year, Power to Change's church planting leaders from around the world gathered in Bangkok, 350 people. We knew even before the gathering of stories of God amazingly at work, multiplying churches throughout Indonesia, Africa, Middle and South America, and even in the United States. So I know that God is at work in the world. But sometimes I wonder, can he really work here? What would it take for God to transform Melbourne? Is it even possible? Are we too secular, too progressive, too prosperous for God to actually work in our own community or neighborhood? It has been said that Melbourne is one of the most progressive and secular cities in the world. And that the ministry type here is so different. So I think again, wow, could God work here in Melbourne? When I moved from Quito, Ecuador to Melbourne, I realized that I'm moving into a new culture. So I actually did some research and learned some things about this city and this new culture that I was moving into. One of the important parts of understanding a new culture is to understand its history. So I wasn't surprised to learn about the Melbourne Revival. 
Now, when I say the Melbourne Revival, some people think of the Billy Graham crusade in 1959. But I'm not actually talking about that. I'm talking about the 1902 revival. It started in the height of Melbourne's gold rush and prosperity. If you go to the CBD, one of the things I saw was the great classic buildings that were built on the back of the gold rush prosperity in the 1880s. Melbourne was so confident and prosperous. It was known as the wealthiest city in the British Empire. They were so confident of their progress, they hosted the World Expo, and they actually built the exhibition building, and that's downtown, and the Melbourne Uni, for venues to host the World Expo. Thousands of people came from around the world, and Melbourne got to show off its progress and innovation. But in 1889, John McNeil began meeting with four others to pray for the salvation of people in Melbourne. He started gathering pastors together, and at the end of that year, he had over 700 pastors from across the state of Victoria gathering to pray. This actually inspired a woman in his church. She started her own small group prayer meetings across the city, and thousands ended up attending these prayer meetings. They'd heard about the great American evangelist D.L. Moody, and they sent him a letter of petition with 15,000 signatures inviting him to come and run a crusade in Melbourne. The letter arrived just as D.L. Moody was terminally ill, and he passed away before he could actually come. But his successor at Moody Bible Institute and the Moody Church was a guy by the name of Reuben Torrey. And so the invitation was adjusted to invite Reuben Torrey to come. So he came, and he preached in Melbourne for a month. But it wasn't just Torrey that came. There were actually 50 other evangelists holding mission meetings around Melbourne and the state during that month. And the average weekly attendance of these mission outreaches was 250,000 people in a state that only had 1.2 million people at the time. Thousands of people became believers during this revival. This revival led to the establishment of what is now the Melbourne School of Theology, just down the road. It also led to the establishment of the Belgrave Heights Christian Convention. It led to Christians introducing reforms to address domestic violence and poverty, and particularly drunkenness amongst the working class. So people who developed the suburb of Camberwell, for example, had legislation in place that there was to be no liquor-licensed premises within the suburb. That legislation was only overturned in 2021 during the pandemic. The legacy of this revival has lasted well over 100 years. With all these new believers and being opposed to drunkenness, they established coffee houses as alternatives to liquor venues. 
So, Melbourne's famous coffee culture can be traced back to the revival of 1902. The Christian legacy in Melbourne is incredible. I lived in a coffee-producing country for 13 years and never got used to drinking it. So don't expect me to weigh in on which cafe here in Melbourne has the best coffee. The last two weeks of Ruben Torrey's missions were held in the exhibition building, the very structure that had been built to champion Melbourne's progressive secular prosperity. Of course, 60 years later, Billy Graham arrives. 1959 was three years after the Melbourne Olympics. He preached during his time here to about a third of the city's population. It was also very transformative. And the final event of Billy Graham's crusade was held in the MCG. And it still holds the attendance record of 130,000 people. Some estimates actually go as high as 143,750 people. And this, just three years after the Olympics closing ceremony, was held there. But that was 70 years ago. And so the question is, isn't it time for that to happen again? How do we see God's work and mission in this city? Well, I can't think of a better place to turn in Scripture to read about a citywide revival than the book of Jonah. It's a carefully crafted story that we often use in children's ministry. I actually helped dub Veggie Tales into Spanish, and yes, I did show my kids the one about Jonah. But the book of Jonah also bears mature reflection. I can't cover the the four chapters of Jonah in one message today. Well, I could, but you'd be going home halfway through it. So I'm just going to skim over the first four chapters, and I want to outline it in this way, and I'll pick out some highlights as we go through. In the first chapter, we see that God's pursuit of Jonah reminds us that God is committed to reaching a hostile, secular people whose hearts are far from him. Jonah's reluctance does not undermine God's commitment. Chapter 2 highlights the connection between mission and prayer. The third chapter emphasizes the turning of the city and their experience of God's amazing grace in response to what is an uncomfortable but necessary message. Don't we have a message that is equally uncomfortable and yet necessary? And the fourth chapter emphasizes one of the main points of the book, or at least as it relates to the prophet, and that is that God wants not just Jonah's obedience, he wants to see Jonah's heart conformed to his heart for the lost and perishing. So let's have a look, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Who is Jonah? His his name actually means dove. Dove in the Old Testament is a symbol of peace, of reconciliation with God, and of God's provision. You think about Noah's Ark. 
In the Noah's Ark story, the dove is sent out over the waters and returns with an olive branch in its beak. And that symbol has actually been picked up by the United Nations as a symbol of its function in the world today. What was Jonah's career? Well, outside of the book of Jonah, there's only one other place in the Old Testament that Jonah is mentioned. And that's in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. And let me read you the, the four verses related to Jonah's career. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king of Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. Uh, those sins were actually creating an alternative temple to, to worship in. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Labo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. Now, do you see what's happening here? Jonah is serving as a prophet in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, which is in conflict with the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom is actually characterized by every one of its kings being evil, according to the book of 2 Kings. So Jonah is a prophet in a hostile environment, in a hostile empire. But Unlike his contemporaries like Amos or, or Micah, who prophesied judgment and destruction over his people, we are not told what the contents of Jonah's preaching is. But the results of Jonah's preaching is that Israel actually expands its borders. It becomes more prosperous. It's through Jonah, the dove's message, that God's compassion for his people are expressed in blessing them. God used Jonah to bless the people, despite the fact that they were serving an evil king. Jonah knew that Israel deserved judgment, but he knew that God had used him to bring prosperity to the kingdom. So, what was Jonah's call? Jonah's call in chapter 1, verse 2, is this. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. God called Jonah to go and preach to a people who are different to him, another evil nation. He's already in one nation that's evil, and God is sending him to another one that's also evil. God is sending a dove, a messenger of peace, bringing blessing and prosperity to this other kingdom. Jonah, instead of heading east, actually flees west to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction. 
Jonah did not want to bring God's blessing and prosperity to Nineveh. Why? Because he knew of the way God was going to use him. God was going to strengthen Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire, and that they were Israel's, Jonah's own people's, greatest threat. But God wouldn't let Jonah escape his calling. He sent a wind and a storm that terrified the unbelieving pagan sailors. And these pagan sailors called on their gods. What gods would they have called on? They called on the god of Yam, the sea god, who in later cultures would actually be called Poseidon or Neptune. We love to name our gods over forces that we can't control. They would have called on Baal, the storm god, who in later cultures would have been called Zeus, Jupiter, or Thor. They're stressed, they're in crisis, and they're calling on their small gods, their gods over those particular areas of responsibilities. And meanwhile, God's prophet is actually asleep in the boat. Do you recall anybody else sleeping in a boat during a storm? Do you really care that we're all going to die? We still live in turbulent times, don't we? We lurch from one global crisis to the next. We have a pandemic. And then we have the Ukrainian war. And then we have a spike in energy prices, which leads to rapid inflation. And then suddenly interest rates rise, and our secular neighbors are actually turning from one small god to the next to solve each individual problem. We look at our medical research to solve a pandemic and the UN to solve a war. And we turn to our central bankers to solve problems with inflation. And it's not just our secular neighbors, but we also have things in our own lives that we turn to our small gods for. We have our small gods for marriage counseling, for parenting tips. We have our small gods for the phone plans or mortgage brokers. But you know, there are too many problems and too many small gods to keep them all happy. But when Jonah is awoken, he proclaims in chapter 1, verse 9, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah doesn't serve a small God. Jonah serves a big God. In fact, the biggest God. The God who created everything. And that's the God we serve. We serve the God who is sovereign over everything. He is the one that we trust. And then Jonah, in response to the crisis, actually introduces a concept that runs throughout the Bible, the idea of substitution. Jonah says, you throw me overboard in order to save your lives. Substitution is a concept we're very familiar with. Jonah offers his life in place of the sailors' lives, just as ultimately Jesus did for us. But God continued to be gracious to Jonah, and he provided a great fish to rescue Jonah, three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. If you've been reading in the Gospels, you actually know that Jesus references this in Matthew chapter 12. It's while he's in the belly of the fish 
that we see Jonah pray in chapter 2. Now, I don't have time to explore or unpack Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, but let me make a couple quick points. The first is that Jonah uses the language of the Psalms. The Psalms are the prayer book of God's people, and they have been throughout the ages. And the second point to make is this, that every great mission is founded in prayer. Prayer is the foundation for God's mission. It's one of the reasons why in our ministry we send out regular prayer updates, inviting people who partner with us financially and prayerfully to pray for what's going on. And part of it is actually accountability as well. Because whatever happens in mission is founded in prayer. It was the foundation of the 1902 revival. It was the foundation of the 1959 Billy Graham crusade. It's the foundation that we must lay today. At that meeting earlier this year of Melbourne church leaders, they were discussing what we need to do to see multiplying churches across Australia. And one group was actually wrestling with how do we stir up a movement of fervent prayer? Perhaps there's someone here in the room today who will be the catalyst to inspire others to pray. At the end of Jonah's prayer, in chapter 3, we see him go to Nineveh. God sends Jonah to Nineveh, and this time, Jonah obeys. Jonah goes to the great city of Nineveh, and he preaches a message. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, when I listen to that message, I think, wow, that's the only content of Jonah's preaching? It actually sounds pretty harsh. Imagine if I stood up and said that and then sat down. That would be pretty devastating. However, let's think about it. 40 days is actually a lot of warning. This message actually produces a citywide repentance in the course of those 40 days. They engage in fasting. They put on sackcloth. The king sits in ashes, and these are all symbols of death. The king and all the people chose to die to themselves now rather than experience God's judgment for what deserved death. I'll say that again. The king and all the people chose to die to themselves now rather than to experience God's judgment for what deserves death. And it says in Jonah 3, verse 10, that they all called out to God. When God saw what they did and saw, they, saw how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, I think about this. If the book of Jonah was a story about God convincing Jonah to go on to Nineveh on mission, and then it should end at the high point of chapter 3, right? If there is a city-wide revival as a result of Jonah's preaching, you would think that that's the climax, you know, the end. They lived happily ever after. They don't, but... Um, God had called Jonah... Jonah fled. God forced Jonah into mission by sending a storm and a fish. Jonah prayed and preached, and Nineveh repented. 
That's the storyline. But surprisingly, we have this awkward appendage, chapter 4, at the end of the book. I think what seems awkward to us actually reveals the main point of the message of the book of Jonah. Because this, in chapter 4, is where God pursues Jonah again. And we read in verses 1 to 4, to Jonah, Nineveh's repentance seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. These verses actually record Jonah's understandable reaction to God's grace being extended to what Jonah saw as Israel's enemies. God's blessing of Nineveh secured God's judgment of Israel later on. Jonah felt like a traitor to his own people, and traitors deserve death. But God isn't content to lose, or sorry, but God isn't content to bless Nineveh and lose Jonah. He continues to pursue Jonah, It's not just Jonah's obedience that he seeks. It's his heart. Jonah declares that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But Jonah isn't gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Are we gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love? As God's prophet... As his spokesperson, shouldn't Jonah's heart align with God's? As followers of Jesus, shouldn't our hearts align with God's? That's the question that the story of Jonah challenges us with today. Because I could explain clearly to you that God's mission, as expressed in the Great Commission, is his call on your life. I can draw from the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation to prove that this is God's mission in the world today and that you should be aligning your life and heart to it. Sadly, we hear that 92% of followers of Jesus don't share their faith with anyone. 92%. Power of change in Australia for the past year has been working on a web app evangelistic tool based on the four, which are four symbols that explain the gospel. There are videos for each of the four points of the gospel done by your choice of three presenters. Nick presents the gospel from a guilt-innocent culture, Yelena from an honor-shame culture, and Pastor Scar is a computer gamer and Twitch streamer. So after the service, you can type in the four.au into your browser on your phone, and to install the web app tool. Also, after the service, you can come and uh, see us at table, and I have some wristbands with the four, uh, the URL, and the four symbols. And you can grab one of those if you want. So, the question 
to be asked is this. How are you preparing yourself to speak to people that don't know the truth? In this church and many others, there's so many activities, plans, and strategies that can propel you into mission. They can help you overcome your objections and help you avoid distractions. They can enhance your effectiveness and unearth opportunities for you to share the good news. But that's not the point, is it? There's so many good resources, tools, strategies, and processes. What we cannot change is your heart. It's God's work to change your heart. It's your heart that God is after. Your heart shouldn't be like Jonah's, sitting angrily outside of the city, waiting for its destruction and arguing with God about the injustice of it all. Shouldn't your heart be like Jesus's, who, as he crests the hill of the Mount of Olives and sees the city of Jerusalem and anticipates its coming judgment, weeps over the city, cries out to God for his mercy and grace to be evident again. So, allow me to do a little review of the message of the book of Jonah as it applies to us. Jonah 1. Jonah and all of us have received a great commission from a gracious God. Jonah 2. Jonah and us have had a personal experience of God's gracious salvation and correction. And then in Jonah 3, Jonah and we believe that even a city so deeply hostile towards God and his people as Nineveh slash Melbourne can experience the salvation of God. And then Jonah 4, what God wants is to have our hearts aligned with his so that we might be compassionate, willing to share the news of God's salvation with the hostile city around us, not withholding from others the chance to respond to Jesus, but instead desiring to see those around us repent and receive grace, as we have, remembering that God is patient and not willing that any should perish. Let me finish by asking this one question. Where is your heart this morning? Let's pray. Father, we believe that you have a heart that is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. We've experienced it in our own lives. We've seen it in the lives of the people here at church. We hear stories of what you're doing in other parts of the world and what you've done in this city throughout history. And we ask that you would use us to express your grace, your compassion, your love to the people of this city right here, right now, today. Move our hearts. Align it with yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.